So, so far in the retreat, we've spoken about the first two ways of establishing mindfulness within the body and within Vedana, the feeling tones of all experience. And the third way of establishing mindfulness in <coughs> is what is called in Pali, chitta which really describes a mind-heart experience. Now, as we speak about the different ways of establishing mindfulness, it's, it's very important to remember these are not kind of uh, separated aspects of experience. They are interactive aspects of experience. So it's not like they're hierarchical, it's not like they're disconnected, They are processes influencing and shaping one another through our day and through our moment-to-moment experience. Also, as we mentioned, the body, mindfulness of the body, remains our primary way of being established, not only in the body, but in the present moment. So this third dimension of mindfulness clearly is an important one, because our mind, heart, our constant companion in our lives, so powerful in shaping our experience, so powerful in, it seems, the capacity of the mind to create torment and distress, so powerful as a doorway of understanding and freedom. So when we speak about this third foundation or this third way of establishing mindfulness, chitta, it's really speaking mostly specifically to the state of our mind, our mood, the background climate of our mind. This includes all of our emotional states. Now, You do have one right now, by the way, just to notice that. Um, It's not like there's a moment when we don't have a state of mind. This is ever-present. But we see how these states of mind are so changeable, how they move through like weather patterns that some states of mind only make little brief visits. You know, we have a a little moment of spaciousness, or a little moment of gladness, or a little moment of, of delight. And, you know, and then it passes and changes into something else. And some of our mental states stay much longer. In fact, at times, it's hard even to distinguish between some of these more repetitive, longer visiting states of mind and patterns or tendencies. They become very familiar to us. Now, many of the states of mind that we that visit us, and indeed that we cultivate in this practice, are very, very lovely. Moments of spaciousness, the mind of spaciousness, the mind of joy, the mind of calm, the mind of brightness, the mind of peace. These are lovely, lovely states of mind that we 
learn not to treat as accidental encounters, but that we learn we can actually cultivate and bring into being. And of course, there are many, many difficult states of mind. Some of these we've referred to in terms of dullness or restlessness or the aversive mind or the discontented mind or the agitated mind. Some of these are far more difficult to be with. But whether lovely or unlovely, the state of our mind has a profound effect because in very real ways, the state of our mind does become our world. There's a a saying that sometimes we imagine that the mind is something like a mirror more or less accurately reflecting the way things are not actually appreciating the mind as the principal architect of our world. Now we recognize the ever-present nature of mind states and tremendous emphasis is given in Buddhist teaching to understanding how our world of experience, how our world of experience in every moment is being constructed And it's important to develop that mindfulness, to know a mental state as a mental state, to know what mental state is present. And in this quality of mindfulness, of course, we're not talking about good states of mind, bad ones, right ones, or wrong ones. We're actually beginning to explore what state of mind actually leads to and perpetuates distress, and what states of mind lead to the end of distress. We say the mind is the principal architect of our world. What we do begin to get a sense of with, with sufficient mindfulness is a way that we perceive the world through our mental states, a way that we interpret the world according to our mental state, and the way that we react to the moment, and to the world through our state of mind. And in this sense also, mental states are really quite shaping the experience of Vedana. Vedana is, you know, these feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, very few of them are actually implicit in experience. Most of them are brought to experience or experiences interpreted in a particular way according to the state of mind. If I give you a very simple example, you know, if you're having a very uh, grouchy sitting, you know, and, and we ring the bell, that's really a pleasant Vedana tone, isn't it? But if you're standing on the precipice of enlightenment and we ring the bell... That's an unpleasant Vedana tone. I mean, if you're in a particularly grumpy mood, you know, and you you look around, all these women here, you know, oh, you know, retreats are so depressing, you know, (laughs) 
perhaps it's a meeting of Grumps Anonymous, you know, and everybody's grim, you know, or everybody's agitated. You know, you have a completely different state of mind and you look around the world here and, oh, these wonderful women, you know, fantastic place, you know, yeah, you know everything we need. It's a completely different world, isn't it? But it's the world of our mental state. I mean, the astonishing thing is, of course, that although we see those mental states change so frequently, how quickly we give credibility to the interpretations that are born of our mental state. But it's more than that because there's also then a behavioral aspect, isn't there? You know, if we're in that particularly spacious state of mind, appreciating all things, you know, we come in here and we smile at our cushion, you know, and we go immediately to our walking path and enjoy every moment, whether even if it's difficult, you know, grumpy states of mind, you know, oh, sitting, I've got better things to do. You know, I'm not going there. I got better things, urgent, pressing things to do in my room. You know, <laughs> can't go sit walking. It's not for me. But actually, so we see this kind of relationship between mind state, interpretation, perception, and then behavioral. And much of this, of course, is, is often happening on quite an unconscious level. The other thing that is helpful to notice about mental states is that difficult mental states, aversion, anxiety, restlessness, notice they produce much more narrative. They're very prolific in terms of producing a lot of thoughts, a lot of rumination, a lot of narrative. Notice the more easeful, I would call them lovely states of mind, calm, kindness, appreciation, the narrative is much less. And that the storyline is much, much less. So it's also helpful just to see this. But it's also helpful to see the way that our thinking is actually flavored by the mental state. Because, you know, if you have a kind of aversive state of mind, that's the kind of thoughts you have, you know nitpicking, you know, critical, judgmental, you know, very selective perception. So, this is much of the work of our practice. To Really, you know, we speak a lot in this practice about obsession and, and rumination because actually we've all experienced, I think, those very closed feedback loops you know, where there's a mental state, it's producing thoughts in line with that mental state, so the mental state's aversive, we have a big aversion story, that aversion story feeds back to strengthen the mental state, which even produces more thought, which again feeds back to strengthen the mental state, and you can feel your psychological, emotional world becoming tighter and smaller and more constricted. This is the nature of obsession. And, of course, what gets added into that in even a more difficult way is a lot of self-view. You know, I'm such an aversive person. You know, I'm such an uptight person. I'm such a fearful person. This is all part of that closed feedback loop. As the Buddha put it, what we frequently think about and dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. 
So we are learning, as with all things, to bring mindfulness into this very present moment experience of mind-heart, of mental states. Sometimes, for us, I talked last night about restraint. You know, as part of this mindfulness, I think, is beginning to cultivate those moments, those pregnant moments of pause on the behavioral level. So we're not moving through the world on the strings of our reactions. You know, if you hear the bell and you find yourself immediately rushing somewhere, you know there's a mental state. So starting to cultivate that, you know, one of the wonderful things about mindfulness is that it slows down some of these processes. So we have those opportunities to pause and to really ask, you know, does this serve me well? Or does this actually deepen and reinforce the state of mind that is present? It's very important, those, those moments of pause. But it's also important to, uh, you know, yeah, it's also important to develop a certain kind of uh, literacy inwardly. You know, to have a vocabulary, an emotional vocabulary for these states of mind. To know, ah, this is aversion. You know, it's amazing how we can delude ourselves, you know. Uh, you know, we, we can be locked in this aversive state of mind, but actually convince ourselves that we're not, and that we're just pointing out what's actually wrong, <laughs> you know, with other people or with the world, you know. I mean, it's amazing how we can delude ourselves. We can be really agitated, but just tell ourselves, you know, I have a lot of responsibilities here, you know. I've got to take care of looking at the notice board and my socks and, you know, keep the world in check. It's amazing how we can delude ourselves. So it's kind of really helpful to develop this emotional literacy. You know, oh, this is sadness. Ah, this is spaciousness. Ah, this is agitation. And being able to explore that in the body, you know. Ah, this is calm. You know, it's very, very helpful to develop that literacy inwardly because it's that quality of mindfulness which is knowing, the knowing quality of sati, to know what is. It's also very helpful to bring about that sense of discernment, you know, and this is different than judgment. Discernment has a big premium in this teaching, you know, to know what is helpful, to know what is unhelpful, to know what leads to suffering, to know what leads to the end of suffering, to know what is skillful and to know what is unskillful. This this is really highly valued in this teaching. It's not about some kind of just sort of passive be with what is. It's actually bringing in that quality of discernment. It's learning to pick up the clues of mental states. You know, the clues are many. Sometimes it's in the thematic continuity of the thinking. You know, if I've spent 45 minutes kind of, you know, highlighting the imperfections of the world, it's, it's probably a clue. There's an aversive mental state going on. If I've spent an hour worrying and planning, rehearsing, it's probably a clue that there's a, a mental state of agitation. So it's, it's sometimes the thematic continuity of the thinking is really bringing us back to ask, well, what is the state of mind? How can I sense that within the body? How can I know that? 
Um, it's also a question of, you know, what is being practiced in this moment, what is being embodied in this moment. This is also a clue to our mental states to start to come to the body of mental states. Beginning to know that we don't need to be a prisoner of those mental states. We learn to be present, not without preference actually, in the lovely and in the unlovely, with that interest, that curiosity, that investigation, what is actually going on here, and really appreciating how much the body continues to be an ally in exploring those states of mind rather than being captured by them, to have a dialogue with, to have a relationship with mental states is a remarkable freedom in itself. What is this? How is it manifesting? How is it being embodied? To have that dialogue is actually turning states of mind into an object of mindfulness, an object of exploration. This is already a radical shift from being imprisoned by them. In one of the Tibetan teachings around compassion, Shanti Deva really encourages that whatever one is doing, be aware of one's state of mind. Be aware of one's state of mind. This is a useful exploration for us in the day as we begin a sitting as we end a sitting, as we go into a walking, because your state of mind will determine whether you even get to that walking period. It will determine whether you continue it. Your state of mind will determine the attitude you bring to the sitting, the attitude you bring to yourself and, and to others. So again, just taking our seat... <coughs> Establishing a posture of uprightness, of wakefulness, of ease. And settling into the calmness of the body, the steadiness of the posture. Inhabiting the body. Inhabiting this present moment. And just turning your attention for some moments directly towards your own mind-heart experience in this moment. And sensing what is the state, the climate of your mind just now. Is it bright or dull? Is it calm or agitated? Is it spacious or contracted?
noticing the thoughts, the images that appear within that landscape of a mental state. Noticing how in the light of mindfulness, how those thoughts appear and how they also pass away. If the mental state is dull or heavy, just asking what that needs in a commitment to the posture, and coming into the body and sensing if there's any ways that the body is registering the state of mind in this moment in tension or in ease, in collapse or in wakefulness. Establishing mindfulness <clears throat> within the body, but also very sensitive to those moments when your attention is drawn elsewhere to thoughts, to sounds. being able to return.
Just pausing and checking in with the quality of your attention in this moment, the state of your mind in this moment.
<clears throat> there's a, um, a pithy Zen a little short saying, which is, when you sit, just sit. When you walk, just walk. Above all, don't wobble. So this applies to the sitting. This applies to the walking. This applies to everything that we do throughout the day today. It's the very heart of the retreat today. We're right in the middle of the retreat. So it's a lovely, lovely day to allow yourself to settle in even more and to really get behind the enormous sincerity and earnestness that I am very much aware of in this room. Really to live that earnestness, really to express that sincerity through everything that you move through throughout the day-to-day, everything being practice, leaving nothing out. It's kind of a law that whatever is left out is what causes trouble, you know? If you're not completely all-inclusive, if we're leaving something out of our field of loving attentiveness, that's where the trouble lies, that's where the suffering occurs. So just today, some, I don't know, sense of of courage not to be intimidated by yourself, not to be intimidated by what we call the practice, but being really willing to enter in in a wholehearted way. You can even have the sense of beginning again. You know, it's wonderful if you think about this as being the first day because you have this foundation under you that whether you feel it or not or know it or not in this moment is actually there. And so kind of building upon that foundation, but with an utterly new and fresh attitude that this is the first day of the retreat. And of course, there's a great deal of calm and steadiness that even if you're not aware of, has happened. And so to build upon that by bringing this kind of very fresh and curious, interested, alert, loving attitude into the day-to-day. Talking about um, being aware in, um, in the midst of all activities, and this is direct from the Satipatthana Sutta, directly coming towards you. Whether going out or returning, the yogini acts with full attention. Whether looking ahead or looking around, she acts with full attention. Whether bending an arm or straightening it, she acts with full attention. In taking one's overrobe, bowl, and spare underrobe, the yogini acts with full attention. I guess this means when taking one's shawl, one's water bottle. Um... Whether defecating or urinating, she acts with full attention. Whether walking, standing, or sitting, whether resting or awake, whether talking or silent, she acts with full attention. You know, so everything within wholehearted, loving care brought to everything that we're doing. Um, now with the metta, seeing if you can approach objects with metta, you know, how, how was a door opened? Or 
how is the body moving throughout the day? Can there be this kind of tenderness? Can there be this meta approach to everything that the hands come in contact with? It's very, very interesting to look at the hands and work with the hands in a meta-like way. So, also today, certainly um, uh, some of you have really taken to this idea of an alternate schedule. Today's the day to completely renounce any alternate schedules because, you know, it's kind of intriguing and it's interesting and it's this and it's that. And perhaps today to live that, to really you know, kind of you've, you've learned about what your alternate schedule might be up till now. Today could be the day to really let it go and to completely, even just for one whole day would be remarkable, could completely um, dedicate yourself to being present and surrendered and alert and awake. Recommitting to silence, recommitting to silence, recommitting to inner silence, not talking to yourself to remind you of that. You know, at this point of a retreat, there's certainly a lot one could say, perhaps to oneself. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. Um, And very much so because of your own practice, but very much because of holding the practice of others with respect and reverence, not talking to one another. Um, If you came with friends, not walking and talking with one another, someone's bound to see you and it is bound to cause some degree of rippling out into the whole group. So because of respect for yourself and because of reverence and respect and protecting the practice of others, recommitting to noble silence in all ways. In terms of, um, of the walking practice, to go to it, you can be aware simply of the feet touching the floor, You can be mindful of the whole body walking through space. You can be aware of walking through mind states. And there's also something kind of imaginative that you can do that can be quite creative, where you throw the mind state out in front of you, and then you walk through it. You throw it out in front of you, and then you walk through it. It's a bit imaginative, but it's quite an interesting thing to try and experiment with. The container of the retreat and experimentation at the same time. And the last thing perhaps to um, just remind you about are the interview groups that are happening today. Uh, You're having two groups throughout the week. And um, uh, so those of you who had a group two days ago will have a group today. So make sure that you check the board and um, and come to your group this morning. Okay, so loving, wonderful, touched with Awareness Day today. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.